welcome to our special SOS Everybody Needs a Bit of Shinsa installment. This is a shout out to all the wine geeks out there. We need some feedback on the Professor's new book, the English version of Jumbo Shrimp Guide to the Origins, Evolution, and Future of the Grapevine. The Italian Wine Podcast is part of the Mama Jumbo Shrimp brand, and Mama Jumbo Shrimp is all about breaking down difficult concepts into small, bite-sized pieces. The issue here is that the new book is, well, a bit difficult to chew at this point. So we want to invite wine lovers out there to give us their input and advice to make the final product more reader friendly. So have at it, wine lovers. Don't be shy. Send your comments to info at italianwinepodcast.com. Now on to the show. Welcome to another episode of Everybody Needs a Bit of Shinsa, the SOS edition. I'm here with Richard Huff. Hello, Richard. Hi, Joy. How are you? Good. Here we are again. Yes. We're going to do this narration of Shensa's new book. As I, I'm standing in for Stevie, she is uh, off jet setting around the world doing via. While we're stuck in the booth. Yeah, yeah. She's in New York at the moment. So let's see here. I <laughs> will uh, talk a minute about why we're doing this. So you're reading these chapters for Shensa, his book. He's an Italian scientist who has done so much work. We'd be here till next Christmas if I was to um, talk about um, all his, you know, accolades and work. But he essentially, he writes in Italian. This is a very scientific book, but we're trying to make it for the everyday wine drinking person international community we're making it accessible uh, we're looking for feedback so that people can and we're going to put it on our mama jumbo shrimp series of books so it has to be you know easy for people to understand and so yeah it's 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 a really awesome book you've translated it and now you know we need to make it accessible so yeah go ahead and 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 read read some of it uh so that people can hear and then uh well, I'll start talking again. <laughs> okay, just to give you some, some background on this chapter, this is chapter 12, which is provisionally titled Science Skeptics. It's slightly less complex, I think, than the previous chapter, um, but it focuses on a, a very topical issue, which is skepticism towards science and towards scientists, mistrust of science. It also addresses the issue of science education and the rapid pace of technological advancement. What has any of this got to do with wine, I hear you ask? Well, with climate change and genetic engineering, science is going to have an increasingly significant impact on wine production. So the idea behind this chapter is that it's to help our readers to have a grasp of the moral, ethical and scientific issues behind these important scientific challenges and developments. Okay, so this is chapter 12, Science Skeptics. Hostility or skepticism towards science, which philosophers more kindly call the criticism of science, has accompanied modern science from its origins, with conflicting attitudes ranging from gloomy prophecies about the end of civilization and inevitably the scientific origins of the Holocaust. Regrets about the passing of the Middle Ages as an organic community-based epoch and the exaltation of primitive agricultural civilizations or the magical world of alchemy are often evoked, even in our advanced modern era. 
More recently, waves of skepticism have returned cyclically since the revolt against science of the early 1900s, the era of the romantic rejection of Newtonian science in the 1930s, and the anti-science and anti-modernism of the late 1960s. This skepticism is based on a pseudo-humanistic interpretation of the inhumanity of science, made up of individuals ready to sell themselves to multinationals or as unknowing slaves to power. From this perspective, science is regarded as an ungodly and even Luciferian enterprise that craves dominance, violates nature, and is directly responsible for social exploitation and inhumanity. It is almost as if, in our age of well-being, there is a sense of nostalgia for less comfortable times. Intellectuals have a strong propensity for the unspeakable, and during the last century, they have found themselves in the hands of the vilest political regimes. But the pessimism and the preaching of an imminent apocalypse pays off in popularity. Hostility towards science, so intensely propagated, is now in danger of becoming a common way of thinking. Young people, above all, believe in the sunset of civilization and identify nature with innocence, bringing together, in a hardly novel mixture, right-wing traditionalism and left-wing utopianism. In 1972, the Austrian-British philosopher Sir Karl Popper, although better known for playing down the powers of science, expressed his full agreement with Darwin, stating that science is perhaps the most powerful tool for biological adaptation ever to emerge in the course of organic evolution. Almost a century earlier, Mendel had claimed that genetics was evolution in the hands of man. We have just emerged from a century that has almost always had a negative relationship with science, even if this is apparently paradoxical. The rapid pace of technological advancement has created major imbalances, the effects of which are difficult to absorb in the short term. The flood of inventions and discoveries are a constant feature in our media with a daily bombardment of new scientific breakthroughs. The results seem for now only partial. Genetic recombination, genome editing, cisgenesis, RNA interference, mapping the genome, new fertilization techniques, in vitro cell research, nanotechnology, and new bioengineered products. As to the strategic destination, there is now only one almost absolute certainty. Suddenly, we are on the other side. Why then, at a time when it seems to achieve more spectacular results every day, is mistrust of science growing? In the past, one of the most striking examples of this phenomenon was the suspicious surrounding genetically modified organisms. Now the rift has shifted onto the vaccination issue. In the technological world, the old is generally unusable and inert. It no longer exists. There is only the new which is full of ideas for the future. The consequence is that the scientific dialogue in many fields of today's research takes place not only among peers, but also between contemporaries. This kind of uniformity also removes geographical distances, making the work of a Milan researcher almost completely indistinguishable from one in California. In such a context, 
the perception of history can be linked to the concept of obsolescence, akin to what the past is to technology, a warehouse of old redundant models. This is how the ancient principle of Historia Magistra Vitae, formulated by Cicero in De Oratore, is interpreted, meaning that the most distant history is less interesting and less relevant to the circumstances of the present. This has led to the revision of history of literature or history of art programs and put in perspective their expected reduction. The syndrome we are now experiencing is the mirror opposite of that suffered by classical antiquity. Then it was the technology that did not keep pace with the leap forward made in other fields of knowledge, including philosophy, law, art, and the ideas of democracy that shaped civilization. Today, we risk being crushed by the opposite imbalance, a technological surge that cannot find a cultural and social framework capable of bearing its weight. A declining prestige of culture in the traditional sense, humanistic, mathematical, and natural sciences, is increasingly accompanied by the growing prestige of technical disciplines and the influence of a culturally impoverished ruling class increasingly influenced by the myths of triumphant technology. The basis of this is the affirmation of a model that in recent years, especially in the post-war period, has contrasted the human sciences with a technological scientific mass more and more technical and less and less scientific as it has been perceived by a part of society. In education, STEM is the acronym for Science, Technology, Engineering and Mathematics. STEM in English is the stem of a flower in a conceptual sense. In a linguistic sense, STEM is the root and suggests something essential, necessary for subsistence. In this way, it activates a powerful amphibology, as linguistics call it, a phrase that is linguistically ambiguous. In fact, the acronym developed by the American National Science Foundation in the 1990s for a program dedicated to the enhancement of certain scientific and technological subjects in schools, which primarily involved the training of 100,000 new teachers in the fields of science, technology, engineering and mathematics, to replace retiring baby boomers who had been ill-equipped for this kind of teaching. In those years, Farid Zakaria wrote in the Washington Post, a liberal education centered on the liberal arts in the sense of the humanities is irrelevant. Technical education is the new frontier. Before adding, the United States excelled in economic dynamism, innovation and entrepreneurship thanks to the educational system that we would now like to oust. Similarly, the Japanese government in 2015 announced in very explicit terms its intention to drastically downsize the humanities faculties in favour of disciplines that would better anticipate the needs of society. A position shared in England, which in 2014 defended STEM as it created more opportunities for young people and opened the doors to all types of careers. It would be illusory to think that the sacrifice of humanistic culture on the altar of the urgency of technological primacy 
is the immediate and logical consequence of the social development in the West. In reality, this sacrifice is also realised in the closed regimes of the Islamic theocracies. You cannot avoid the issue by trying to suppress the power of technology. Instead, it is necessary to gradually adjust to the new reality to establish cultural, political and moral framework capable of absorbing the impact of change without political or ethical delays. Politics is in crisis because it feels that life is eluding it. It is technology that determines our way of life and shapes our standard of living. Politics lags behind, failing to understand a revolution in which it is a mere bystander. Hmm. That's actually, oh, that, was a, that was a good chapter. I like that. Yes, it really raises some really interesting and really topical issues, quite challenging as well in, in some respects. So yeah, yeah, I think it is one that's going to hopefully provoke some uh, some conversation and some some feedback. What do you think about his style of writing? Like, yeah, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, he has a very particular style of writing, which, without wanting to court controversy, is is probably quite common in the academic world and and certainly in the Italian academic world, and that's fine, that's great, but. Obviously, what what we're trying to do is is to create something that is more digestible. So the question is whether we need to be more explicit in making some of these arguments and make them even more digestible, I suppose, for a for a wider audience. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. Well, I think that uh, with that in mind, we should probably uh, you know address the listeners and you know just say if you have any thoughts any opinions any advice on how we can do that um you know it would be really helpful as we uh, continue to work on and um bring this book um into into fruition for a wider audience of course you've you've translated it into english and so you know now it's a, the point where we need to figure out what what is going to be done with it. So um, go ahead. If anybody is uh, has listened, has any thoughts, and contact uh, Richard directly at... Yes, my email address is hoff, which is H-O-U-G-H, at justdothework.it. Okay, so H-O-U-G-H at justdothework.it. Yeah. Cool. And then we, of course, in the notes, in the show notes, if you just scroll down on wherever you get your pods, you will see a list of our social media handles and you can go on, hop on there, you know, like Twitter at Itawai Podcast. Just, uh, yeah, leave a comment. It doesn't have to be, you know, anything, you know, groundbreak. Just uh, we or we really need a bit of interaction. Yeah. Even just a thumbs up or a thumbs down probably would be enough to. Yeah, uh... that would make us feel good. So. <laughs> All right, Richard, until next week, that's all we have. You know, as always, keep listening to the Italian Wine Podcast. Like, subscribe, go on to our Spotify, give that some love. And of course, we have our Mama Jumbo Shrimp YouTube channel that has been doing some awesome things. There are so many videos on there uh, with some great wineries all over Italy that Stevie has been visiting. She's been really busy. She's actually in New York right now doing her thing. So until next time, uh, that's a wrap. Thank you. Goodbye, Joy. Bye. Listen to the Italian Wine Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. 
We're on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Himalaya FM, and more. Don't forget to subscribe and rate the show. If you enjoy listening, please consider donating through italianwinepodcast.com. Any amount helps cover equipment, production, and publication costs. Until next time, cin-cin. guys, I'm Joy Livingston and I am the producer of the Italian Wine Podcast. Thank you for listening. We are the only wine podcast that has been doing a daily show since the pandemic began. This is a labor of love and we are committed to bringing you free content every day. Of course, this takes time and effort, not to mention the cost of equipment, production and editing. We would be grateful for your donations, suggestions, requests and ideas. For more information on how to get in touch, go to italianwinepodcast.com.